Sairam, dear listeners and viewers, and greetings to all of you from Shantinalaya. I have the pleasure of having with me here today Dr. Sri Kansola, who works in the in Swami's Hospital in Whitefield. He has got a CV as fat as a Bible, and so if I start talking about him, I can't get to talk to him. So let me just say, he is a cardiologist with a huge heart, heart full of love, and I will let him introduce himself to you, and from there I'll take it over to you, doctor. You tell us about yourself <laughs> and who you are and how you happen to be here. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Sairam, to all the listeners and viewers as well. Uh, I'm a cardiologist, as you said, by profession, and was essentially brought up in the United States, was born in India, but moved to the United States with my family when I was about five or six years of age. When was that? That was, oh gosh, 1976-77 or so. And uh, body's 40 now, 40 years of age now. So all of my studies was there. But from an early age, there is something about me that always wanted to be of service to others, always wanted to help others. And when even just seeing a slight bit of suffering, I would feel like going out and helping in whatever way I could mm-hmm. in those small and young, young ages. Mm-hmm. That led me to become a physician, eventually become a cardiologist, and then one day I found myself here at Swami's Hospital. Tell me a little bit about your cardiology experience, because before you came here, you did pretty good there, I believe. Yeah, very fortunate. <laughs> very fortunate. So let us uh, let our listeners hear and see hear uh, how well you did there. Because all I know is you were in the who is who, and that's something. Sure. <laughs> so well, please tell us to, about your American experience. Yeah, I don't want to brag. No, it's not a question of bragging. It's informing. So sure. nothing wrong with that. Sure. In high school, I uh, did very well. I had worked very hard. Was very good student but also a very good athlete. I played a lot of tennis and was very active in the sports uh, within my school. So was trying to... I, I could say, you, uh, I couldn't believe you're 40. You look 25 <laughs> to me. <laughs> uh, I think the body keeps young through... No, I'm not a hard doctor, but you look young. <laughs> okay, carry on. Yeah, so was always trying to seek a balance in whatever I was doing, whether it was in academics, in sports, in community service. And when I joined college, I went to Stanford University, which in those days was considered to be the best uh, undergraduate university. I believe university. it still is. Yeah, it's a wonderful place, <laughs> wonderful place. It was fantastic being with the best of the best and the brightest of students from all over the world. There, the tradition in those days was that uh, during your summer holidays, especially during your first and second years, typically one would seek out work which was in line or would somehow support your work for your subsequent field of study, whatever that might be. So for me, medicine... Had you decided so, what you were going to do when you went to Stanford? You know, I came into Stanford thinking I was going to be a physicist and that I was going to invent rocket ships. <laughs> <laughs> physicists don't do that. They go after Higgs particles. Yeah, and okay, actually, anyway. once I started the physics, I thought, oh my goodness, this is way too hard for me. So I went... What? We lost you. I'm a physicist. <laughs> anyway, you ended up doing a better job. Thank, thankfully, with Swami's grace, I went to where I needed to be, or rather, where he needed me to be. Uh, but what happened was, as I was looking for this summer work after my first year of college, I came across a unique opportunity, a charity in which students and young people would ride bicycles across the United States from different starting points and all convene in Washington, D.C., the capital of the USA, for charity. We would raise awareness about the development needs for 
rural areas in the United States as well as in overseas countries, typically in those days Central America and South America. And we would raise funds for grassroots-based development projects. So it was on this ride, as I was riding 100 kilometers per day across the U.S., stopping at different places, speaking you mean different places. You drove all the way, went on a bicycle by from Stanford to Washington, From DC. San Francisco to Washington, San D.C., 5,000 kilometers. Jesus Christ. It was a long way. <laughs> How <laughs> many days did it take you? It was about nine weeks. Nine weeks. And we were very, very strong by the end of those nine weeks. Yeah. <laughs> but what happened is one day, you were ready to join, uh, go for Tour de France or something like I that? Was, we were very strong. <laughs> we were very, but that was part of the balance. Okay. Academics. So, so what happened in Washington, D.C.? development. What happened is on the way to D.C., as we, when you're riding 100 kilometers a day, 8, 9, 10 hours, you've got a long time to think. To you went alone or with some companions? With a group of about 19 other people or so. There so you were all riding as a group? Right. We would ride according to our pace and our style and so forth. And so as I saw different parts of the country, America is a very wealthy country, but there are pockets of deep poverty within that. It's the same really, unfortunately, in every place. And what I found was that what I wanted to do Our was to be Our pockets are very big. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, but it's there everywhere. I know that. Country, I know that. I every know place. That. Perhaps in some place it's more of a material poverty. In some place it may be more of a spiritual poverty, but it is still there nevertheless. And so what I realized is what I wanted to do was to serve. I didn't know about Swami at that time. I was just 18 years of age. It was only when I was 19 that I came to know about him. But that set the ball rolling. And once I learned about Swami, then my life changed after that. Okay, now I have to ask you that question. How did you learn about Swami and how did it change you? Sure. I was a typical Indian kid okay. growing up in the United States. Did you uh, participate in spelling bee? All no, Indian no, no, not, <laughs> not like that. <laughs> not like that. But I did pretty well at Stanford. But what I found was that even though I had all the success that one could ask for at that age, around 19 years of age, going to a good university, doing well academically, having wonderful friends, a good social standing, had a wonderful family, I found that there was something else, but I wasn't quite sure what it was. It just so happened that my second summer mm-hmm. of college, after the second year of college, I had some time to be in the mountains of California. Beautiful mountains, not many people go there, uh, just unspoiled wilderness. And I had a chance to be by myself in those mountains. And there I learned to connect with this sense of silence, sense of peace, sense of huge love. I just couldn't describe what it was. I didn't actually know what it was. I could say, is it something? Was it God? Yes, of course it was. But at that age, when you're 19, 20, what do you know? At least for me, growing up in the U.S., I didn't know. But once I heard about Swami, then that was it. How did you hear about him? That's the real point. I was traveling to India to meet my grandparents. Oh, you were traveling to India. Right. And on the way, Mm -hmm. on a plane, sitting next to me was a gentleman, a Sai devotee, who had a book about Swami. Mm -hmm. And I just happened to ask him, as we were landing in Chennai. So what brings you to India? He just says, oh, I'm going to see Sai Baba. I said, oh, Sai Baba, I've heard of him. And he showed me a picture Mm. on the book. And as soon as I saw that picture, I said, oh, Sai Baba, Sai Baba is God. You said? I said, inside, I said, inside. And then I knew that. And when I got down from the plane, I told my relatives, Sai Baba lives in Puttaparthi. Can we go and see him? <laughs> that was as it. As it. <laughs> that was it. And so on that same trip, we made Can I tell you a couple of stories about airplanes and Sai <laughs> conversions? Sure. Uh, I'll tell you about a gentleman in Japan. He's a Japanese. 
software engineer. He got a job in uh, working for a company in California. So one day he was flying from Tokyo to San Francisco, and uh, he wanted something to read. So he went to the airport bookstall and he picked up a book on Swami in Japanese. Oh, wow! And he read it, and he was changed. Then he got a job with a software company in Bangalore, so that he could come here on work and sneak <laughs> to put up a for Darshan. He was a service coordinator in Japan. I see. The other story relates to another distinguished heart doctor from America, Dr. Jivanandam. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, she is sure, not sure. a cardiologist, a cardi- but a surgeon. surgeon. And I had the pleasure of interviewing him many, many years ago. And he told me he was once flying from. Pittsburgh to Phoenix in Arizona where his parents were. His mm-hmm. parents were side devotees. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, I was the typical American kid. I wanted to become rich, have lots of money, fast cars, this, that. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> he was not at all shy about talking about those things. And he wanted some reading material and just happened here. So I happened, he got hold of a Sai book. That was all that was available about Swami. Mm-hmm. On the plane, he was changed. He said, when I got down from the plane in Phoenix, he had to come down this ladder back in those days. Mm-hmm. So I was a changed man. <laughs> Just like that. High altitude <laughs> transformation. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> for both of them. Yeah. And uh, in a sense also for you. So yeah. that's good. I have been looking. I knew there was something, but I wasn't sure what it was. Remember, I was 18, 19. This was in the early 1990s. Although I was growing up in the United States, in California, there was a lot of spiritual activity around me. Temples were just starting. It's not like how it is today, where there are large Indian communities and large activities. It wasn't like that back in those days. So I didn't have exposure to that. But once I came, everything transformed for me. Okay, before you uh, start asking you about your visit to Puttaparthi, uh, I must tell you for the record that Indian spirituality went to California at the end of the 19th century. Swami Vivekananda went mm-hmm. He was there in 18 something something, uh, toward, just before the 20th century. And he went to Chicago for the World Parliament of Religions. Right. And uh, he stunned the audience with his opening sentence and then he got invitations left and right. He stayed in America for three or four years. Okay, now you were telling me that uh, you had decided the moment you saw the photo that you wanted to see Swami, mm-hmm. whom you uh, recognized as God. Right. So how did that happen? The Take first visit. That. The first visit I came with my grandfather. Now it's very. Where was your grandfather living? Grandfather lives in Andhra Pradesh in Vijayawada. Vijayawada. He was a lawyer in those so days. So from Madras you went to Vijayawada. Right. Went to see my family mm-hmm. and. He's a very elevated soul. He's very spiritually advanced. Many people in that area consider him to be a guru, someone who brings uh, seekers oh, yeah, to the light. So he and I went for the very first time, and he told me about Swami. He told me many of the experiences that they had had, Vibhuti, Amrit, interviews, and so forth. In fact, Swami had once in an interview told my grandfather that he is a Jeevan Mukta, Someone who is liberated while alive. So such a rare soul I had uh, as my close uh, companion, friend, and guide. And it was through my grandfather that I learned meditation. I learned to silence the mind. I learned to go into that quiet state where one finds Swami outside but also inside. 
And so with that type of guidance, I was really able to take advantage of these visits in those days. In those days, there wasn't much physical interaction with Swami. In fact, it really wasn't until I came here and started working at Swami's hospital that I had more regular interactions. It was always outside. But that outer, outer type of interaction forced me to connect with Swami within. Because my visits to India were once a year, but I was in the U.S. the rest of the time, and so no, I had to learn. what do you mean by outside? That's what I'm The physical about. form of Swami is so enchanting and so beautiful and so wonderful. That's true, but uh, again, but in the United outside? States, how is it possible for me to talk and ask Swami a question? Oh, oh yeah. For to get guidance no, to, to really say, how do I live my life here in a way that you but want you know, to? But you know, if you don't mind my telling you, you're geographically outside but actually you are connecting to Swami inside. Yes, yes. Um, for us it was the opposite. We were all physically near, but we were outside. <laughs> I'm not saying this in jest, it's really a fact. So, uh, your grandfather has launched you in the right orbit. Yes. yes. That's very nice to hear. Yes. Carry on. Yes. And so that's how I developed. I went to medical school. Mm-hmm. In medical school, I worked very Medical school hard. in Stanford? Or? This was in the University of Louisville in Kentucky. Kentucky. And during that time, I worked at Stanford and Harvard Medical Schools for part of my training. Mm-hmm. During that time, I remember one Swami said in discourse, he said that medical students today, if they get 50% marks, they study for a few hours, that is enough. But medical students should study 15 hours a day or so. So in those days, when I heard that, I really studied. I would study 15, 16, 17 18 hours a day during peak exam time in order to master the material that was present. And our exams were very thorough. As a result of that type of studying and the grace that Swami gave me, I ended up studying at the top of my class, not only on a national level, but on a, I mean, not only on a school level, but on a national level. And that was because of the grace of Swami, the guidance of Swami. And um, all along you were quite comfortable working in USA. You didn't think of coming here or anything like that. No, I had thought of, all I knew was I wanted to serve. I didn't know how, I didn't know where. That was my main focus. And when it came time to specialize, then I thought, what is the best way to help other people? And what I was seeing in the hospital as a medical student in those days were people dropping dead of heart attacks left and right. And so I realized that for me, cardiology was the way to approach that. So I went to my residency training in internal medicine, which is medicine for adults. Then I started my cardiology fellowship, and through that, then I began my work eventually at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland is a sort of a fantastic. Place it is. Heal. It is the hot seat of cardiology. Yeah, that's what I thought. And I remember one of my mentors from my fellowship training at Emory University in Atlanta, which itself is a very good institution. Yeah, I heard of that also. He was telling me that the Cleveland Clinic, compared to some of the other places, top place in the U.S., the Cleveland Clinic is still a whole stratosphere above any of those places in terms of quality. (laughs) And, you know, when I went to see some of these other places, Johns Hopkins, Harvard, uh, Duke, Mayo Clinic, and others, they're all outstanding places, excellent places. People who go there for their medical care should consider them very fortunate because the quality of care is so good. But the Physicians, the surgeons, the nurses, the researchers, the team at the Cleveland Clinic was just phenomenal. And the experience that I got there, that was my early professional experience, really was unmatched. No, I'm just a little curious here as an academy. 
you said it's phenomenal this is great what's the difference between the two qualitatively and quantitatively the difference between the two would be like having a regular car and having a mercedes benz or an audi it's it's such a no, difference uh, in terms of quality uh, that is the what you call the manifestation but what made it different first the entire focus was on quality everything that we did should be just perfect in terms of how we treat patients how we diagnose patients how we do surgery how we do research everything should be just perfect in what way were mayo clinic and all not that perfect they were good yeah but then what is that extra that you had that's that what extra, i'm trying to find i think out. was the people that were there a conglomeration of physicians surgeons nurses who all worked very very hard no but they were hard at howard they do i think what happens no well, what i'm trying to get at is did it, did it have anything to do with the philosophy of medicine health care how you relate to the patient or what them what was the thing that set you apart from the others i think the entire focus was on quality and quality was such that even how do you though define quality because they also how is quality right how do you define quality see there's different ways you can think of quality in terms of numbers like mortality that is death after uh, treatment complications what we call morbidity you can think of quality as in terms of physician experience the number of cases that you see or you can think in quality in terms of the patient experience how does a patient feel what is a patient experience when they're coming to a hospital so at the cleveland clinic the quality encompassed all of these these factors and so what i learned from being there was to be a good physician to be a good diagnostician to be good in treatment to be good in relating to patients through an excellent bedside manner i learned how to communicate well with other physicians because we had physicians coming from not only all over the country but all over the world their patients their physicians would be sending their patients to us for treatment so we had to treat the patients but also communicate back with those referring physicians so that the care the high quality care we gave could be continued even when the patient went home this required not just giving good treatment but being a good doctor but also a good person that's what i learned there. okay that uh, reminds me of many things but now you have to talk so <laughs> i won't uh, dwell upon that right now now you were in cleveland from when to when from 2005 to 2008 so just spell for 3 years mm-hmm. a lot was achieved though in that time no that's, that's true but uh, what happened in 2008 2008 i was happy my family and i were very happy uh my boss dr steven nissen chairman of the cleveland clinic at that time still chairman today one of the internationally renowned physicians there he said you're one of my departmental superstars other colleagues would joke is that srikanth you're if you continue on this track you're on your way to becoming chairman of the clinic after another 5 10 years and they would just laugh like that and i would laugh also having gone and spoken at every major conference in cardiology all over the world i was doing very well and we were very happy i published in many papers had won all sorts of awards for my clinical and, and research work etc patients would come from all over uh, former president jimmy carter's staff staff would come and see me this uh, president this prime minister this king of some country would come that was the type of patients we were seeing and then one day 
I got an email from the Satya Sai Center in Cleveland. One of the members had forwarded an email, which was talking about Swami's hospital in Bangalore. And in that email, they were describing a position opening for training for a cardiology fellow doing interventional cardiology. That is a type of person who does stents and angioplasties and so forth. Now, I was already trained, had already been done. But at the end of that email, there was just one single line. And that line said, positions for consultant cardiologists are also open. And when I saw that line, it hit me like a thunderbolt. I thought, this is it. This is my chance. Okay, here I have to interrupt you and ask you a question. 2008, uh, there were, by that time, there were two hospitals of Swami, one mm-hmm. which started in 91 and one which started in 2001. In fact, I was presented the inauguration of both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, my question to you is, uh, did you know anything about this? Did you have a casual acquaintance? Did you ever visit those hospitals? Or you came here just for your personal communion with Swami and that was it? Yeah, it's a good question because most people, when they think about moving to another country, uh, leaving their profession, their current profession, moving to another country, they would go and visit the place where they would be working. They would go and see who are they going to work with. What is the community like? What are the schools like for their kid? Our son was eight years old at the time. Uh, what is their lifestyle, way of living going to be like? We didn't do any of that. But did you know anything about the hospital? Have you ever been sure, here before? Sure, we had, uh, in fact, when I was at Duke Medical Center for my residency training, Dr. Mitch Krukoff was oh, yeah. one of my yeah. attendings. You know him. He helped <laughs> set up the initial cat labs here in yeah, Swami Super Speciality Hospital in Puttaparthi back in 1991. So through Dr. Krukoff, I tried but somehow couldn't get a position here for residency training during that time. Again, during cardiology fellowship, I tried again to come to Swami's hospitals, but again, couldn't, somehow it didn't work out. So I worked at the Cleveland Clinic again. I was very happy, but when that no, opportunity came... you are required came, to, get to go there and then come. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And actually, that is exactly correct. I had to be there. I had to get that experience. You had to bring dowry with you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But that experience had to come, and that was a wonderful experience. And in fact, I'm still in touch with my colleagues there. We have a number of research programs going on. We have a number of educational programs going on. And I continue to learn and train so that I'm always up to date on the latest technology, the latest uh, happenings in healthcare, especially in cardiology. Now, let's come to your coming to Bangalore. Uh, all said and done, Bangalore is not Cleveland mm-hmm. in all senses of the word. Uh, despite being a devotee and all that, was it a cultural shock? It was very different. <laughs> okay, it's you're diplomatic. Culturally, <laughs> <laughs> nice. every organization has its own way of working, right? And so the way of working in Swami's hospital is different from the way of working in the Cleveland Clinic. There it was very much individual. No, it's n- that is understandable. Every right. organization is different. But you know, uh, the, even the basic practices, the way people relate to each other, that depends on geography, history, right. and so many right. things. And uh, did you have any problems with that? As far as the, the medical practice, not really, no. I picked up many of the local languages that are spoken by different patients from different Not very in quickly. terms of the, that, uh, that's a different, uh, that's an important aspect, uh, I agree with you, which I overlooked. But what I meant was, uh, to be very practical mm-hmm. <laughs> and frank, 
the work culture in india is very very different from the work culture in a country like america i have been there i have stayed there and i know the difference uh, the administrative culture is also very different right i am not going to either support or uh, criticize we have what we have it's a product of history and circumstances these things don't change overnight but when you go into a setup there are difficulties and sometimes people do get affected they do get uh, dispirited and all that but uh, facts are facts uh, in india i have worked in many establishments and the levels of what you call efficiency bureaucracy and all very from place to place right right so it does affect uh, uh, people right. do you feel cramped in any way i think what happens when people talk about working in a charitable organization they often equate charity with low quality unfortunately mm-hmm. and when i went to bangalore to work there in swami's hospital mm-hmm. i found that the quality of the work no, no, there was that's what swami is concerned that's uh, uh, the quality is not sacrificed right. what you're saying But is how do you do the work though on a day to day basis that's i think that what i found was in bangalore as well as in puttaparthi we follow Uh, so there's certain guidelines for how cardiologists should practice these guidelines are published by the large cardiology societies from throughout the world and they're updated quite frequently no, no i'm not talking about that i'm talking of working environment you know whether the nurses are uh, as uh, efficient as mm-hmm. in other, those countries right. sometimes they hamper they may not understand uh, uh, what you are seeing because right. they have been trained differently right the hospital practices are not what you are used to so there are all those uh, difficulties that doesn't mean that uh, things are bad but it's a different system different culture what i'm trying to say is did you find that impeding you in any way no not really not really because we were using the same machines the same technology the same way of practice In fact what I found very interesting is that having worked at so many big centers in the US especially at the Cleveland Clinic I thought I had seen pretty much everything there was to see but once I came to Bangalore I realized that the 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 severity of disease the types of cardiovascular illnesses that we were seeing was far more than what I had seen in the US in fact I learned more after coming to Bangalore than I did when I was in the US I I saw stuff there that I'd never seen before I'd only read about in textbooks and in stages and in mannerisms and types of presentations that I'd never even seen I had heard about them I had read about them but here were patients and I was taking care of them of course I had many senior physicians to support me and and they're all just wonderful you know Dr Dash Dr Badawa and the others they are just fantastic cardiologists What I would say is that there are some cultural differences but I think over time I was able to adapt to those pretty quickly. The thing that makes it so much easier is that the atmosphere is so congenial, so cordial and so loving that there's a certain sweetness that you see in everyone who works there. And when you have that sweetness, no matter what the differences or different expectations are, that somehow helps to smooth those out so that it makes working there much much easier. Dr. Kesura who used to be in San Francisco he was our cardiologist here in Puttaparthi he has uh, since left in our comes occasionally many years ago we went to the hospital and we interviewed many doctors mm-hmm. and uh, i interviewed him and he made a remark which is very similar to what you said he said when i was in america 
I've seen many patients, but all of them came with very similar kind of heart problems, which was the result of the American way of life. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, we saw a very wide spectrum because all these people came from different strata of society and also different poverty levels. Right. And uh, these are diseases we hadn't even read about in textbooks. Yes. So it was a very big challenge. And often uh, we were the first doctors they ever saw. That was another problem. You know, right. I, at best one or two preliminary consultation, they must have said we can't do anything, go somewhere else mm-hmm. or something like that. So the challenges are very different. And uh, I have also heard uh, some doctors telling me that uh, the patients were so undernourished that they couldn't operate on them. So they would admit them and first bring them to a certain level of nourishment right? so that they could tolerate the surgery. Right. That was something <laughs> which I had never heard of before. Right. Sometimes we have to fatten up our patients literally uh, <laughs> before they can go through an operation because they need a certain amount of reserve, amount of strength to go through an operation well. There are certain unique challenges working in a hospital that focus on care of the poor, uh, social challenges, nutritional challenges, uh, being able to afford certain types of medications after the operation is done, even being able to travel back for follow-up care because having a surgery is one part of the patient's care, but there's still a long-term care that is required uh, after some certain types of interventions. So those are unique challenges. Now, within that system, we have a setup of several hundred physicians from all over the country who see our patients after they're discharged for free for many months afterwards. And they're able to follow up with us, communicate with us about the patient so that even if the patient is not able to come back physically, at least we can help Yeah, uh, that I heard. so uh, that we can uh, adjust or assist. That, uh, follow-up is something very important. Follow-up is very important. The other thing we do is we counsel the patients not only on things like nutrition and hygiene, but even things like stress management, dealing with anger, dealing with emotional toxicities, alcoholism, smoking addictions, and other things that are common in every society, in every strata of society, but in a way that is uh, easy for them to understand. And I think that makes a big difference. I think what you'll see in Swami's hospital is very interesting. In Swami's hospital, you'll see that patients are crying when they leave the hospital. Where in most hospitals, people cry when they get admitted to the hospital. (laughs) Why are they crying? We are running the movie backwards. (laughs) They say, doctor, I've been to so many hospitals. I've seen so many doctors, but I've never received as much love and kindness as I have from all the staff here. That is a distinction. It is high quality care. Yes, it is offered free of cost but it is offered with love and compassion. I think that is what makes it so wonderful to work in Swami's institution, that love, that sweetness, it's its the honey that, uh, that underlies everything that's done there. Dr. Michael Nobel of the Nobel Foundation is the great-grand-nephew of Alfred Nobel who established mm-hmm. the Nobel Prize. He has come here a few times, and uh, we also interviewed him, I think, if I remember correctly. But anyway, he has been interviewed many times, and he made a very interesting remark about Swami's hospital. He's uh, been involved with uh, the medical uh, healthcare business because he was connected with a company that sold equipment, medical mm-hmm. equipment. And he said, I've seen many hospitals all over the world. I've seen high-tech hospitals. I've seen charity hospitals. 
but I have never seen a high-tech charity hospital. <laughs> this is very unique. Yes. Another remark he made, which was very interesting, he said, if you go to Europe, uh, at the entrance you will have a photograph of the president or the king of the country. Mm-hmm. In Sweden, we have the photograph of the king of Sweden right at the entrance. But in Baba's hospital, I found a photograph in every ward. And I was thinking about it, then I realized that uh, those photos are very reassuring to the patients. Mm-hmm. And actually, the love that uh, emanates and, and the sort of resonance between the photo and the patient makes the patient recover faster than in other places. Yes, because it's a divine environment. Uh, it's a divine, supercharged environment, really. But if you look at that quality, again, going back to what we said earlier, most people relate charity hospitals to low-quality hospitals, and unfortunately, most people relate quality to luxury which is not correct. There are many luxurious places which actually quality is pretty bad. No. But in Swami's hospital, you have this tremendous quality. If you look at our mortality, <coughs> cardiac surgery, neurosurgery, it's 1% or less, which is comparable to say 3 to 4% for other hospitals around the world which are taking care of similar complex complexities in their patients. If you look at our infection rate after surgery, If you look at countries like the United States, South Korea, which have the best infection rates in the world, it's around three and a half to four and a half percent. If you look at uh, Western European countries, it's around six to eight percent. And if you look at developing countries, including India, it's anywhere from 12 to 18 percent. But if you look at Satya Sai's hospital, the super speciality hospitals, our infection rate is only three percent. And that too, given the malnutrition, given the patient's poor understanding of of complex surgical issues, given so many things, that's amazing. That's just amazing. What is it the result of? Superb care. Superb care. Everybody takes personal interest. I remember Swami once said, he said, don't think that this is Swami's hospital. Think that this is our hospital. And that's the feeling that we have, that we're all working together. Many times we have physicians who come from abroad to visit us to lend their expertise and skills. And we're very grateful because it gives us a chance to learn the latest in medical care for that particular specialty. And we all benefit. And they all say the way in which everyone is working so hard to improve the patient's standing, the way that everyone is working together, they don't see that at other hospitals. There's no ego saying, I want to do this my way, or you can't do it that way. We have to do it this way. That doesn't happen. We're always looking at what is best for the patient, and that is what happens. That's what we look for. In the year 2000, in September, my wife was admitted in the super speciality hospital here. She was terminally ill, and so mm-hmm. he said, take her there. And she was there for 40 days or so, and then she passed away. So I was there uh, most of the time because we were just two alone and I would spend many nights to be near her and so on. Of course, my sister came and so we would take turns. Her sister came and we distributed the load. But uh, that is not the point that I'm trying to tell you. There were a lot of sevadals as always Mm -hmm. and they used to take turns. There was one guy who was something like a comic. He would come and try to <laughs> entertain my wife. She was having pain and all that in Hindi. And uh, he was a funny character. But on the last day, he went around crying. He said, what happened to him? He was crying because he had to leave. 
Oh, <laughs> that was very strange. I mean, he, he really loved being there. And he said, now my dream is coming to an end. I have to go. I have to go back to my work. What a horrible place that is and so on and so forth. It was really very touching. Another thing I wanted to mention is that in the very early days, especially in this hospital, you know, at that time in 1991, Puttaparthi itself was a village. Mm-hmm. I remember Dr. Safaya telling us that uh, during the construction time, they would go out for tea to a hut just on the other side of the road. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the road that leads uh, to Brahmanapalli. Right. This other road, airport road, was uh, getting built at that time, along with the airport. The airport and the hospital came almost together. Mm-hmm. The airport beat the hospital by a few days <laughs> because uh, the prime minister had to land <laughs> for the inauguration of the hospital. The point is, in those days, the people who came were very poor. And I remember doctors telling me that if they ask a patient, what's your address, they didn't know how to give the address. Mm-hmm. You go to a remote hamlet, there are half a dozen houses, there are no streets with names and all that. Right. People know where everybody, in the village know where, who lives where. Right. right. Now, when he comes here and the doctor says, I want a postal address so that I can write to you. First of all, he speaks in a dialect that is not understood by the doctors. Right. And uh, luckily, if there are people who know the language, then it makes it slightly different. But say, Babu, tell me your address and all that. <laughs> he will say, my address is next to that of so-and-so. Who is the village I mean, chief and things like that. How do you write a postcard to him mm-hmm. <laughs> saying <laughs> your, your daughter's surgery is fixed for this day? But these are all practical issues that we have to look at. at. It's taking care of the patient as a whole, not just the very disease. Very tough, very tough. I remember Swami once told us, he said, when you're taking care of a patient, don't just treat the illness. Look into why they got sick. How did they get sick? And take care of that as well. So when I'm taking care of a patient who comes to me with heart pain, chest pain, let's say, and it's coming from the heart, I often look into not only is their sugar control, do they have diabetes, do they smoke, is their weight okay, blood pressure is all right, the usual medical things. We look at the holistic aspect. Is their anger under controlled? Are they able to manage their stress appropriately? What are they doing? to? Ma- we all have stress. It's there in different levels for everyone. How are they managing with that? How are they coping are they able to to control their senses in the way that is appropriate for their situation? These are all things that we look at as well. So it becomes a very holistic way. Now, treatment is good, but then you have to look at how are you treating the patients. And I'll say that in Bangalore, we're very lucky because we're constantly updating our equipment. We have, in fact, just bought a new cath lab. We're purchasing another brand new cath lab. We just got a new set of echo machines that are the first in India first in India, the most advanced echo machines for diagnosis of heart disease that is possible. And we're now getting ready to purchase a brand new MRI scanner that will again be the first in India, the most advanced technology that is available. And we'll be able to do tremendous work for our patients with that. So we're talking about quality, but you have to understand that this is the best quality that is currently available at the time. This is what we use for treating our patients. I remember Dr. Ayer describing a case he handled many, many years ago, in the early years. There was a young girl of seven or eight or nine, maybe. She was brought to the hospital. She was in a terrible condition. And they examined and it looked as if she was going to die in another 10 minutes. So he found there was no heart problem. 
and then what has happened was there was fluid in the lungs. If you mm-hmm. take that out, it will be all right. So the, there was an issue whether she should be admitted or not because she, was, she didn't have a heart problem. So the, Dr. Iyer said, nonsense, we have to save a life and we have to do something and then they removed the fluid and uh, she was all right. Then he tried to find out what was the problem. Basically, he looked at her, she had long nails, and then he talked to the parents. They used to take bath once in uh, 15 days, Mm -hmm. and uh, there was total lack of cleanliness, just in the village across the river, Karnataka Nagyapalli. And uh, it was their lifestyle that produced the infection. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had to give a long lecture on how to be clean and so on and so forth. Uh, It nearly caused a death, he said. So, uh, ignorance plays a big part, apart from poverty. And this is a large part of what we do. Before we see every patient, we have different teams of counselors. Some focus on the psychosocial aspect. Some focus just on hygiene. Our nutritionists come and speak to the patients about what type of foods to eat, given their local availability, given their income and so forth. This is all part of good care. Many of them are so poor, how are they going to afford to eat high-quality protein, especially for a growing child? So we look at ways in which we can provide them that or that they can get that on their own after they leave the hospital. Once they're in Swami's hospital, it's no problem. We take care of them. We make them nice and plump before they leave. But after they leave, we still have to support them so that they're good quality. Care is done. We don't want all of our hard work to be undone because of poor social circumstances afterwards. Okay, now I have to ask you the mandatory question. Tell me about one tough case that you handled, which was very tough, but it got through by Swami's grace. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes when you had a difficult patient, someone comes before you, say, in the emergency room, and you're talking to them, you're trying to work them up, and then they just collapse right before you. They, you know that they have a heart attack. They need treatment right away. And you're doing your best to whisk them upstairs to the cat lab to get the treatment that they need so that their blocked artery can be open and they can get blood flow back to their heart. So there have been times where a patient comes in gasping with chest pain and then collapses, basically is dead, clinically dead. Somehow, with Swami's grace, we're able to resuscitate them. The the recovery rate from such events are generally pretty poor. See, I can perhaps restore the pulse. I can restore a blood pressure. But what happens during that time that we're doing CPR and all the other events is that blood flow to the brain is not sufficient mm-hmm. and a patient comes out with brain damage. So although they may be physically alive, they're what we would call a vegetable. So these type cases I've seen, the patient comes out fine just as they were. I don't know if they're better, but certainly they're just fine as they were beforehand. That is amazing. When we see a patient that we give up for dead, but yet somehow we're able to save them and bring them back. That is Swami's grace. You know when you see that it's nothing that we could have possibly done, but it's Swami's grace that made that possible. Okay, now I'll change the gear completely and go to a slightly general plane, if I may. That has got to do with the fact that you worked once in America. Uh, American healthcare has been very much in the news for a number of reasons, mm-hmm. including the fact that the Supreme Court ruled on it in a very convoluted way. I'm sure you must have right. heard about the Supreme right. Court judgment, the outbursts and so on and so forth. But uh, that doesn't concern me. 
what I would like you to tell me and our listeners and viewers is something about the kind of healthcare system that is prevalent there, which is very expensive and yet does not deliver the goods in the manner that many people expect it. Some people praise it to the skies, but a lot of people feel deprived and even cheated. There is something that is not very level over there. Mm-hmm. And uh, we need to get some idea of that system which is good at one end but not so good at the other end. Right. So that we can place Swami's hospitals in a certain context. Right. It's a good question. I think that in every society you will see a certain segment of society which falls ill for various reasons. And so for those people you need very advanced, high-quality care so that you can take care of them. The U.S. has that. It has extremely high quality. You'll see the best of the best health care, the best of the best research, uh, teaching, education, for, for whether it's not only physicians but nurses, technologists. It's just wonderful. But then, you know, every now and then I'll get magazines and journals updating alumni of the former institutions where I studied. And I'll see that one such institution had just opened up a 280,000 square foot cancer center for that particular region, which is wonderful, really. But then at the same time, I'm wondering, why is it that we're having so much cancer that we need the 280,000 square foot facility to take care of them? Why is it that we're having so much heart disease when the cure or the preventative tools for those are so widely available? Why is it that we're not able to deal with basic things such as smoking, alcohol abuse, inactivity, obesity, diabetes, and so forth? What I feel we have to go towards is a more preventative type of approach. Swami told us again many times, he says, work for prevention. It's not enough just to take care of those who are sick. You must go out and teach others how to prevent themselves from getting sick in the first place. And this is a key component. Yes, there are certainly a lot of good efforts made in prevention. In fact, in cardiology, you have a whole discipline just dedicated towards preventive cardiology. But it's often looking at things like blood pressure, diabetes, and so forth. We need to look at the whole factor. But is it not connected with the lifestyle itself? Yes, it is. It is the lifestyle. But the lifestyle comes from where? Is it it an external lifestyle where you're looking at your cell phone, your iPad, your, your computer, you're sitting in front of your TV all day? What is it that's keeping people from being active? from being healthy. But I, I also see people hyperactive and stressed out. Either you get uh, this uh, f- from inaction, sitting in front of the TV and gulping bags of potato chips, <laughs> or you are running around all the time, hardly any sleep, kicking around in the office and uh, trying to make uh, bucks for your boss. Right. That comes from one simple thing, in my opinion, and that is a focus on happiness through external means. We're never taught that real happiness is found inside of yourself. As soon as you are born, you're bombarded, or your parents are bombarded, even before you're born, with advertisements saying that in order, in order to be a good parent, you have to buy this and this and this and this for your <laughs> child, whether it's a crib that they ne- will never use, or fancy blankets and bed sheets, toys that they will never understand because of their age, etc., etc. And this goes on through our entire life, where we're always taught you need to buy this to make you look beautiful. You need to buy this to make you I look... I think, uh, you know, what is going to happen, very soon you will have this uh, 
machines that examine mothers uh, which have got a little chip embedded there which sends commercials to the newborn baby <laughs> advertising before you're born. As long as you're looking outside of yourself, you will always be disappointed. There is no contentment in external things. It is only from within that contentment and happiness is found. And so this is where society needs to change. We need to stop brainwashing ourselves that external products or commercial activities will give us happiness. They're necessary, sure. We need a car. We need a place to live. We need clothes to wear. But do we really need to replace them as frequently as we have? There was a recent study in the United Kingdom, for example, which showed that the number of clothes that are sitting in the closets of the people of the UK exceeds some $230 billion dollars. That's a lot of money that could be used for elsewhere. That's basically UK. clothes that people have bought and not used. United in Kingdom. Kingdom. Yes. Oh, well, it yes. must be much more in U.S. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I leave the last word to you. You can say what you would like to tell our listeners and viewers, and we will together say goodbye. Sure. So, over to you. The last word is always love. The last word is always love. And I think it starts with loving yourself. Because if you don't love yourself, you won't be able to love What do you others. mean by loving myself? Loving myself. yourself. What we usually do is we beat ourselves up. We say, I'm no good. I'm not good enough. No, a lot I of guys say, I'm this. the smartest. I'm the greatest. That is ego. <laughs> that is ego. Loving yourself, not in an egoistic or narcissistic or selfish way, but loving yourself as a child of God. As Swami's ah. divine creation. And as that divine creation, you are inherently divine, which means you are beautiful, you are gorgeous, you are worthy of all good things in life. What we do is we tend to put ourselves down. We say, I'm not good enough. I don't deserve this. I deserve to be beaten up, whether verbally or physically, by my spouse or my friends or my family or whatever it is. I deserve to not have enough. But when we love ourselves as God loves us, then the divinity in ourselves can be revealed. We have to love so that when we love ourselves, we share that love with everything else in creation. And it's this love that is the first and the last thing. That is what matters. Love and love alone. Thank you. Thank you very much on behalf of our studio and our listeners. Thank you. Sir. God bless you. Sayang. Thank you. Sayang.